Welcome to the podcast of CGEM, the Center for Genetically Encoded Materials. CGEM is a National Science Foundation Center for Chemical Innovation dedicated to transforming the fabric of society with genetically encoded chemical polymers. I'm Jeffrey Townsend, Elihu Professor of Biostatistics and Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Yale University and the Director of Collaborative Communication and Information Transfer at CGEM. In our last podcast, we heard from Alana Shepherds, Sterling Professor of Chemistry at Yale University and Director of CGEM. Professor Shepherds explained the details of the exciting science going on at CGEM, giving a glimpse of potential futures, including diverse genomically encoded materials. Today, I'm delighted to have as a guest Riju Das, Associate Professor of Biochemistry at Stanford University. Professor Das has made some remarkable contributions to the chemistry of RNA. His research has been recognized by a Burroughs Welcome Career Award at the Interface of Science, a W.M. Keck Medical Research Program Award, and the Open Eye American Chemical Society Outstanding Junior Faculty Award. I met Professor Das a few years ago in the early stages of putting together a large collaborative project, a lot like CGEM. I was captivated by his work, and I'm excited by its potential to help achieve the goals of CGEM to create sequence-defined polymers by creating new functionality from the translational machinery of the cell, particularly by intentional re-engineering of ribosomal RNA that's integral to the translation of gene sequences. Riju Das, welcome to the CGEM podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Well, um, let's start by first just introducing the main player in our conversation today. I'm sure everyone in our audience is familiar with DNA, uh, deoxyribonucleic acid, but your research is primarily on RNA, ribonucleic acids. I like to think of RNA as DNA's much more limber dance partner in producing the remarkable performance of encoding all of the cell's structures and functions, the structures and functions that make all of our cells, all of our tissues, all of our organs, and all of our bodies function every day. If our RNA wasn't working, and neither would we. Could you just start by reminding us of the many roles that RNA plays in the cell? So RNA takes part in basically every fundamental process in our cell and, uh, and in many human diseases. So as an example, when RNAs cut and paste themselves in the wrong way in our brains, that causes neurological diseases like many forms of Parkinson's, spinal muscular atrophy. And uh, there are biological entities like uh, RNA viruses, and those include HIV, the flu virus, those entities ha don't have any DNA at all. They have purely RNA genomes, and there are conserved little bits of that RNA that are critical for um, the replication and infection of those viral beings. And so I and uh, many other labs in, um, in biology and in chemistry um, would like to uh, understand these processes and maybe even treat brain diseases and take out viruses by disrupting these RNAs that are involved. And what really excites me is the prospect of perhaps even fighting fire with fire. So I'm really interested in designing new RNA molecules um, that might go and carry out these disruptions and act like little machines that could then perhaps defeat or diagnose a disease. And maybe we can have some faith that that would happen because RNAs in the in the cell currently are doing some more diverse things than just, as you said, carrying messages back and forth between DNA and what proteins we're actually yeah, to Yeah, what's build. been discovered in the last 10 years is, uh, uh, for example, every single message um, for a gene um, in, in the human body at some point cuts and pastes itself into a brand new message. It's like it's as if you're typing um, a sentence into a Google Doc and then the sentence just magically um, 
excised the whole clause and corrected itself to give you a, a new sentence. And the, the thing is, RNA does that on its own. This is just a discovery that's happened in the last, let's say, 10 years. It's been established. Maybe even even more fundamentally, um, there's a machine that I think of it as the, as the mother machine of life. It's called the ribosome, and we're going to hear more about it, I think. Um, and uh, it's, it's a machine that um, makes every single protein in our body, but it's composed mostly of RNA. In fact, we think that at the very early stages of life, some 4 billion years ago, this was a pure RNA machine that gave rise to our modern world. Um, and so uh, I, that discovery, again, was only um, solidified about 15 years ago that, that ribosome is an RNA machine. So we're learning a huge amount of what RNAs can do, even just besides coding for messages and acting as genomes. Yeah, I remember when I was in graduate school, all that rRNA, uh, I was doing a lot of gene expression work. And even back at that point, that rRNA was just, everyone just thought of it as a bunch of junk that you had to get rid of all the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not something that was really having some functional purpose. Somehow it was wound into the ribosome, but there yeah. was only a, a, a sort of a modicum of what we understand now about how incredibly functional that stuff is. That's right. And how it's actually doing things. And um, so it's really exciting to, to learn about all these new functions. And, and so um, I know that you've been delving into those functions and learning a lot more about what RNA can do. But, um, but I think you're actually a physicist by training. Is that correct? That's right. My, my uh, uh, research as an undergraduate and graduate student was in particle physics and in cosmology. So how did you end up coming to RNA as a molecule to study? I mean, did you, when did you first run into RNA or learn about it even before that in high school? Or, or? Yeah, although, again, I think like you, I thought it was basically a, a kind of a junk molecule, <laughs> as maybe a scratch pad for genetic information. And only um, when I was um, starting my PhD, I was just looking for interesting problems in physics. And I, uh, I, I couldn't find any that I felt um, were fundamental, but ones that I could maybe tackle in my lifetime. The <laughs> big problems would require building massive telescopes and or colliders that would take that uh, were taking decades to um, put together. So I was looking for um, a fundamental problem that um, I could I could have I could look at um, in the time scale of a scientific career. And I was just walking down the street at I was at Stanford University as a graduate student and a friend of mine who was doing an MD PhD said, Hey, you got a there's an amazing talk that's about to happen in the medical school campus. And um, so he uh, led me over there. It was just a five-minute walk away. And uh, Peter Moore uh, from Yale University uh, was giving a talk where he announced the th that he had solved, he and collaborators had solved the three-dimensional structure of the ribosome, this fundamental machine. And I didn't quite know what it was. I knew it was important because <laughs> the talk, it was standing room only, and I had to sit in the back and... Uh, <laughs> peek over like uh, uh, numerous people standing in front of me. But when I saw the picture of this machine, which had taken a lot of effort, two decades of effort to solve it at atomic resolution, it looked to me like, like two strands of Linguini had somehow assembled into a Ferrari. Okay? <laughs> like this thing is a, it's a complicated machine that is basically made from two, two big ribbons. And that struck me as I just had to figure out how that happened. That that it it was just it was an epiphany for me um, to realize that that was that was what was driving my cells um, and so I said that sounds like a biophysical problem that I should tackle uh -huh. and since then that was maybe that was in the year two thousand I think mm -hmm. so I guess for the uh, roughly twenty years since then I haven't stopped thinking about RNA and and ribosomes. 
Wow, that's a, that's a interesting. That's a great story of, of sort of inspiration to go in a certain direction, and you've certainly taken it a long way. So that's really, uh, really fantastic. So, what was your first research on RNA structures? How did you sort of bring your physics background to this problem to start with? Well, there's a there's a there was a technique that people um, has started using in biology called X-ray scattering, where you you shoot X-rays at a sample of biomolecules. It could be ribosomes, it could be RNAs, and then you look at what how those X-rays collide off the RNAs and land on a detector. And to me, that was like what I was used to as a particle physicist. <laughs> yeah, so it's I just something you're just shooting lab, particles. Said, hey, at... I can do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we can and, shoot uh, some particles at a yeah. something biological. Absolutely. And usually, yeah. we just shoot it at other particles. But <laughs> yeah, so I think that that. That demystified it. It was a little entree for yeah, me, that's and it great. demystified the whole experimental process. Uh-huh. And so although I was largely doing theoretical physics and data analysis before that, I guess I felt this need to make these molecules. I felt this, um, yeah, I felt this desire to, to create them myself. And so I, it was very humbling, actually. I, I, I uh, went to a biochemistry lab, and, and, um, and I said, I'd love to learn how to make RNA and, and, and probe it. And I remember the first, they said, okay, you can have a desk. Uh, you sound like it could be a, an addition to our lab. I remember the first day my mentor showed me how to use a, a pipetter. That's the um, small device you use to uh, get little bits of liquid and mix it with other bits of liquid. And I and I turned it the wrong way and I destroyed this person's pipetter. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and I was almost about to break down in tears. I thought, oh, the first thing I did in your lab was destroy your pipetter. <laughs> And he said, no, 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 I can probably put that together. Let me give you another one. And uh, so this is, his name is Rick Russell. He's now a professor. At Maybe Austin. I can offer you some more expensive equipment. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then I proceeded to then destroy the next pipetter he gave to me as well. <laughs> I turned it the wrong way. So I did not get off to a great start. Um, I didn't know how to do any kind of, I mean, I was a disaster at any kind of experimental chemistry or biology before that. But um, I, yeah, I, I, I just fell in love with it. Um, and at some point later in my career, I came back to doing more theoretical and computational work to try to simulate these molecules and uh-huh. maybe even rationally design these RNA molecules. And I'm excited about potentially joining CGEM to uh, bring these c- computational approaches to redesigning the ribosome to do other cool things. So a lot of what uh, what I'm familiar with what you've done uh, involves tools to sort of visualize RNA structure, predict RNA structure, try to design RNAs with right. custom functions. Um, at the time when you first started doing this, what kind of tools were available to do that sort of thing? And, and did you sort of start seeing, uh, you know, a path for your own research as like, you know, there's more than we can do the, about in this area? Or how, how did you come to start seeing yourself as contributing to the sort of design and visualization area? Well, there weren't very many tools to design new RNA molecules. And okay. I think uh, I think we're starting to see this uh, almost generational change that's happening. Where um, so in the in the '90s, early 2000s, and maybe you saw this in your career too, Jeff. Uh, a lot of us who got trained in molecular biology, biochemistry, um, it was considered a little bit off pathway to go think about engineering new molecules because there's so mm-hmm. much beautiful stuff you can learn about natural. Molecules Absolutely, and how yeah. how and how the human body works and how bacteria work and um, there was um, I think a lot of us grew up with the purest view of what science should be um, and then but I'll tell you what started happening for me um, when I started eventually started my own career um, I got asked by people I was I'm at a Stanford Medical School and I got asked by people can you help us design an RNA that could help uh, 
let us turn on or off a gene therapy. Some of mm -hmm. you in the audience may have heard of CRISPR-Cas9 molecules. These mm -hmm. are these they're actually little RNA-guided machines that allow for um, genes to be turned on and off, maybe eventually in the human body. And But we don't have good ways to um, uh, control them to make sure that they only um, are active in, say, your liver cells if they're trying to cure a liver disease. And I started trying to um, solve these design problems myself, like with pencil and paper, and then uh -huh. I tried to bring to, to bear these computer tools, and then I couldn't solve them. And I asked people in my lab, and they couldn't solve them. And then we applied, you know, these the largest supercomputers that we have access to at Stanford, and we still couldn't solve these problems. And then I would bug, um, you know, my heroes in the field, people who had won Nobel Prizes for their discoveries in RNA science, and they couldn't solve these problems. Wow. And so that's led us to, uh, that first of all made me think that, hey, this is a set of problems that's worth thinking about. These are these are puzzles that are um, worthy of uh, great minds tackling them. And, yeah. Um, and they're intellectually really rich. Um, and I also started to see how, um, especially the design of new molecules, in this case RNA molecules, might have an impact on medicine. And so I've, I've really shifted my priorities um, over the last few years to the design of RNA molecules and including the ribosomes that we hope will let us get to sequence-controlled polymers um, through the CGEM project. Great. So I'm going to come and talk to you. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about Eterna and some of the, mm -hmm. the massive open science laboratory that you've designed in a moment. Uh -huh. But but before before that came about, can you just sort of describe what the environment of tools that you might use to think about these design problems are? So, for instance, I know that there actually is some pretty some actually pretty outstanding ability to actually predict structure from a standpoint of calculating the free energy and stuff like that. Can you mm -hmm. just sort of navigate through what the space of tools that you sort of have to sort of work with in, in figuring out these kinds of things? Yeah, so about um, starting in the late 70s, um, the real early pioneers of RNA physical chemistry, these are folks like Nacho Tinoco at Berkeley and uh, Aki Uhlenbeck uh, in Colorado, um, uh, they realized that um, if you knew, if you, you could first of all, you could figure out how strong an AU pair is and how strong a CG pair is. This is like adenine and uracil. And That's right. So the, I should take a step back. <laughs> so RNA is like DNA. It has four chemical components, and they go by A, C, G, and U. It's kind of like DNA, A, C, G, and T. Mm -hmm. And A's pair up with U's and C's pair up with G's. So that's the very much like they're called the, the Watson Crick rules of base pairing. Yeah. So to a first approximation, you can understand a lot about RNA and DNA through those rules. And uh, these folks um, figured out ways to measure how strong those base pairings were in 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 units of energy, actually in units of calories, like the same same units you you ha you see on a can of yogurt. <laughs> um, and uh, they made these measurements, and then their colleagues. Um, in computer science, created algorithms that let you take an arbitrary RNA sequence and uh, figure out the lowest energy fold. That is the most likely uh, set of Watson-Crick base pairs that this chain will form as it doubles back in itself to try to form these AU and CG pairs. And so that, I, I'd, I've long felt that that body of work to solve what's called the RNA secondary structure uh, problem 
is one of the capstones across all of biophysics. It's, it's a really amazing accomplishment. It's, it's pretty incredible. I remember from my own experience, you know, evolutionary biologists who were my colleagues when I was uh, getting my PhD, using this as a way to figure, you know, they would just come up with a sequence and then they would just sort of say, this is what the fold is without actually having to do any biology to figure it out. And I was like, that's amazing that yeah, you can sort of happen? have, how can yeah. you have that much predictive, predictability? I, yeah, yeah in just... fact, it wasn't, I think, almost after the, right after the invention of the internet. I remember in the <laughs> late 90s, mid to late 90s, that you could type sequences onto a, a, a website and get back predictive structures. And, yeah. you know, so this is, um, this is really well established. Um, so, uh, so those tools have existed for a while. Um, they but it turns out they're not totally exact. Mm -hmm. And uh, so even though we know how strong an AU base pair is, it turns out sometimes like A's will pair with G's, which is a, called a non-canonical pair. And we don't have good measurements for the energy of those pairs. And then there's also some other f kind of funky things that the RNAs can do where you uh, that um, are not base pairs at all. And we don't have ways to measure all those energies. And so these models of RNA folding have been incomplete. And part of the reason that, for example, designing a switch for a CRISPR-Cas9 molecule um, is hard is uh, well, partly it's just it, it turns out those puzzle, those kinds of problems, they feel like Sudoku puzzles and crossword puzzles. They're hard to solve even in a computer, given our best guess for the energetic model, given our best guess for these rules of folding. But because there's a uh, what some people call a reality gap between our computer models and mm -hmm. the real world, there's enough uncertainties and inaccuracies in our models that um, even if, if you make an RNA that folds up perfectly in a computer, uh, if you then try to make it in real life, there's a good chance that it'll fail. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think this framework that has been built up over 20 or 30 years is is incredible, but it's un, uh, it'll always, almost always certainly have these gaps. Mm -hmm. And one of the big challenges in our field is figuring out how how do we get around the uncertainties in our computer models. Okay. So uh, one of the major breakthroughs that you're responsible for was what you termed a massive open laboratory solution to the problem of designing RNAs with specified structures. Can you tell us what a massive open laboratory is and how it worked and how you got there? Yeah. So let's see. When I was a postdoc at the University of Washington, I helped launch a video game for uh, solving biochemical problems, and it's called Fold It. And uh, it actually uh, came out of a earlier project called a screensaver distributed computing project. Oh, yeah. So some of you who are... Um, maybe were on the internet in the 90s or early 2000s, may remember that you could go to SETI at home or folding at home. And uh, while your computer was sleeping, you, you could actually volunteer its extra cycles to go help on a search for extraterrestrial intelligence on in radio signals, for example. And um, so I had helped launch a project that um, uh, tried to solve the structures of proteins in a computer uh, on these volunteer computers. It's called Rosetta at Home. And when we were just testing out the screensaver on our computers and other uh, and around uh, the University of Washington campus, we talked to people and they say, "Yeah, I got it set up and it ran fine. It didn't crash." But I think that what what I could see in the screensaver, the way that protein is folding, I don't think it's folding up the right way. 
Like, those arrows weren't lining up the right way. <laughs> and so they were telling us, and these weren't experts. They're like, eh, I, 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 you know, I, I saw what the final answer was, and I, I knew something was going wrong in the simulation on my computer. And that got a lot of us thinking, wait a minute, maybe, maybe humans could solve this problem <laughs> and computers couldn't. Huh. And, uh, and so there was a um, team set up, uh, David Baker's lab in biochemistry at University of Washington and Zoran Popovich's lab at, uh, in computer science. They teamed up to make a video game wondering if people could do better than computer algorithms at, at solving, folding up these proteins in the computer. And so Foldit was released in 2008. And, um, and it was, A, it was cool that tens of thousands of people signed up to, to play this game. Again, yeah, you that's can still right. play it. You should go to the website. It's called Foldit. Huh. Um, uh, and B, there we, they, uh, we started to see that there were some problems. There were a few problems where humans could do better than our computer algorithms. I got to say, I was a little bit unsatisfied with the whole thing. And I used to prod the uh, the programmers who were putting it together. They, they, I used to sit next to them in the lab and I'd say, hey, you're not really doing science. I mean, it was <laughs> kind of mean, but I'd say, you know, science, you, you, you should um, come up with these models, like these structural models of these proteins, but you should then test them in the lab. Okay, so mm-hmm. I was taking this hardline attitude that science must have wet lab experiments and they must be... Um, and uh, must involve testing predictions with real experiments. It's it's us scientists confronting Mother Nature. That's yeah. my ro- kind of romantic vision of what we're doing. Right, and right, right. So what, what I then left and started my own lab, uh, one of the Folded developers named Adrian Troy started was also starting his own lab at Carnegie Mellon University. And I called him up and said, hey, Adrian, if you can make a, another video game that involves RNA, my lab had figured out ways to rapidly synthesize any RNA molecule experimentally nice. and and figure out what it might fold up into and with an experiment, real experiments. That's awesome. That's and great. so so then the challenge was on. So he and I designed uh, the, a game that we call Eterna, but uh, it has this interesting uh, and new uh, twist to it. So when, when uh, you play Eterna, uh, and this has been going on since our launch in 2011, when you play Eterna, the stuff you type into the video game has a chance of getting synthesized uh, in my lab at Stanford, and then we return um, feedback to you. In fact, your, a big chunk of your score is determined by how well you do in these lab puzzles where the answer comes from actual Mother Nature, actual wet lab experiments. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when we launched this in 2011, we had no clue if anyone would want to play this. We had no clue if anyone would you know respond to having their score based on you know <laughs> experiments? What kind of yeah. a gameplay is that? Yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, but within a month we had twenty thousand people playing Eterna. That's amazing. And uh, and after about six months through this virtuous cycle of gameplay and experimental feedback, the players of Eterna could design RNA molecules uh, with stable, complicated structures. Um, and they just totally outperformed every computer algorithm that we had um, uh, had up to that point. So it was that was a that was an astonishing, astonishing result. So we call this a massive open laboratory because again, anyone anyone can go to eternagame.org and play this game. It's open. It's massive. We now have over 140,000 uh, people have have registered to play. And you'll go online now. You'll see hundreds or thousands of people who are interacting with each other. And um, it's a laboratory because there's real <laughs> lab experiments going on, um, and you get to see the feedback. And so I think it was a 
what we had hoped for uh, was that maybe people would come and play and they would get the idea that they'd be motivated by the med- potential medical applications or they might, they'd be motivated by the points and the competition. Uh-huh. But then what we found is that the players who have really played it for a long time, they're like me. The first thing they'll tell you is not the number of points they have. They'll tell you the number of uh, RNA molecules they've had synthesized. Yeah. And um, and they'll, the thing that they find thrilling is the thing that I find thrilling. I get an experiment done and I find out if I have gained any predictive power over mother nature and yeah. even if i'm wrong i f- i get that rush uh-huh. when i see the results of an experiment and these folks all have share that rush yeah um and so that's yeah so this was a video game with a experimental back end that's what a massive open laboratory well, well it's interesting how how we sort of Im- import our, our own ideas about like you know our ideas oh they'll be motivated by points right because we're familiar with points being video games mm-hmm. and stuff like that but it turns out like citizen scientists just like us end up having some of the same motivations, you know, some curiosity about the real world. It's a really, and it's such a great thing that you have set up in a way because you can have fun and and try to understand the real world at the same time and and contribute to science. That's yeah, really... and I think well, there's also uh, the re- amazing surprise for me. It was just, again, the community of the players who are on Eterna, I mean... Uh, the majority of the of the folks who we um, interact with, uh, they don't have otherwise any connection to science. These are not graduate students. They're not, you know, professors. They're not even, um, you know, at pharmaceutical companies. They're, I think they're folks like, I used to know so many people who were with me in high school and who were, you could tell they were just really good at science. They're really good at puzzle solving. They, mm-hmm. they love science. But... They couldn't be bothered to jump through all the hoops to get the A's in all the science classes, <laughs> to take all the standardized exams, you know, to go and enter conventional yeah. scientific research, say, as an academic or as a, as a scientist at a, at a, at a company. And, um, but I think there's just a lot of folks like that, you know, probably 10x, 100x the number of folks, the, the number of people who are like you and me, Jeff, who are yeah. in, um, say, academic science. And... Uh, if given a route to contribute to science and to see results of experiments, um, then uh, then they do it and they do it incredibly well. Oh, that's that's really great. I want to ask you just one technical question. Sure. So, how do you set up the actual experiments? Because obviously, you can't do every experiment on every molecule that hundreds of thousands of people design. Well, you know, the, when we know, started, <laughs> the, we you're, you're totally right. We could only we could only synthesize eight designs a week. We could do it every week. Uh-huh. That was exciting. That yeah, was a new, relatively new nice technology, and, yeah. and probe them. But we only make eight designs, and 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 so we uh, we asked players to vote on. Uh-huh. Uh, so they would we would typically get about a thousand submissions a week by uh, players who had earned the privilege of taking part in these lab puzzles. We just asked them to vote, and it actually got to the point where a lot of people were leaving the project because they thought voting was a dumb way. Huh. To uh, to choose what to synthesize, so in around 2012, 2013, actually, I remember we had at that time we had about eighty thousand players. We were getting about a thousand submissions a week. We were making eight designs a week, and there were a lot of folks who were on the forums um, saying, "Look, this is a popularity contest." It was the same players who oh. were getting their designs voted in every time. You, know, you guys should change it. You should make it a lottery or 
we should elect a Senate, you know, to, to go <laughs> look at every design and choose what gets made. And, wow. Um, and I was thinking of implementing peer review, which is how academic science works, <laughs> where in this case, you would have every review seen by at least five other people as a condition for them making further submissions. And it's all got very complicated. But kind of being in the in the Bay Area at Stanford, and I'm kind of I'm surrounded by these techno-utopians who uh, believe there's a technological solution to everything. And and in this case, there actually was. And so, <laughs> you know, we uh, in, that was around 2012. Um, it, it turns out technologies that come online that would let you create pools of tens of thousands of RNA sequences all at once. Oh. And this uh, technology that many of the, your podcast listeners will have heard of, DNA sequencing. There's a way to hack those DNA sequencers to then probe the folds of all of these uh, sequences wow. as well. And so we started, We I actually went into the lab. I hadn't done experiments for a year or two, but I went back into the lab and figured out how to create a new experimental pipeline for Eterna. And so since about 2013, if you've entered the lab, if you're playing part in lab puzzles, everything you type into the game will get synthesized. Wow. That's an amazing accomplishment of the lab science. So yeah. I, I, all I can say is congratulations for figuring that out and putting it together. That's really really exciting and empowering to everyone who plays the game. Yeah, yeah, it's it's tremendously exciting. And so, and for some of the recent challenges that we have, um, so for example, we're trying to make now a, a set of RNA molecules that that have a kind of magical property. They can compute, they can compute arithmetic functions. They're little molecular calculators, <laughs> little molecular calculators. What they do is what we needed for a, um, there's a bunch of diseases uh, like tuberculosis, malaria, um, where you can predict whether someone's getting these diseases or sepsis, which is an absolutely deadly disease. It's a leading killer of people in, in the in U.S. hospitals, for example. It's terrible. Or just hospitals around the yeah. world. And uh, there's been a set of discoveries over the last let's say, five to ten years that you can sometimes predict or uh, you can predict the onset of diseases from uh, the concentrations of RNAs in bloods, particular gene signatures. Okay, hmm. And what uh, a colleague of mine at Stanford wanted to do. His name is Pravesh Khatri. He came to me and said, we're discovering these gene signatures. They involve RNAs. We're uh, licensing them to be turned into genetic tests, but those tests, are they take a long time. And for a lot of these diseases, like sepsis, you need to know the answer, like, right away. Like, and ideally, at the, right, right at the bedside, right at the point yeah. of care would be the best thing. For tuberculosis also, um, there, there's a need of, for a point of care device. In fact, that's been the top priority of the World Health Organization for trying to take out the TB in, uh, endemic. Um, so TB has been, TB affects about a third of the world's human beings. It's endemic to humanity. Yeah. And uh, what's really been missing is a, is a quick diagnostic to tell if someone who has a cough is it TB versus something else. And so Purvesh said, hey, these are all RNA signatures. So these gene expressions, it's actually RNA genes in your blood. That's right. And then he said, hey, uh, Riju, you and Eterna are doing RNA design. Could you help us make a pregnancy kit-like test for these diseases? So you're saying something like, I've never heard of this before. You're like maybe thinking of designing like an RNA that binds to a couple other RNAs or something and like sort of figures out whether they're all there. Yeah, and and it actually has to compute signatures that are like – the ratios of products of other RNA concentrations. Oh, wow. And only when that when the, the special signature number goes above a certain value will it make a like a line on a piece of paper turn red, like a pregnancy. Oh, so it sounds bananas, right? But yeah. we realize that um, 
we could turn this into a problem for Eterna, the uh-huh. design of R- of new RNA calculators that respond to these blood uh, RNAs and um, would enable these tests. So the first of these challenges went out in uh, late 2016, early 2017. It's called the Open TV Challenge. It's to, we want calculators that would detect these uh, three gene signatures. And, um, and um, it was the hardest challenge we've ever had in Eterna. It yeah. involved puzzles that I can't even solve in silico, meaning on my laptop. Okay, so much less. So I have no hope of making an RNA calculator that would actually work in a test tube because I can't even get it to fold up properly in a in the computer. And this was the case. Uh, most people in my lab can't solve these puzzles. So, but we we c- crossed our fingers and launched this on Eterna, and wow. um, and we got uh, thirty thousand solutions to this puzzle. So players stepped up. They wow. got uh, the whole community realized. It would be amazing if we could make these molecules and enable a new kind of diagnostic. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I'm glad we got 30,000 solutions because when we finally synthesized them and tested them all, there were <laughs> we got a few dozen that worked. So that was the great news. We got a few dozen wow. that worked. But if we had made, I think, even like 10x fewer, we probably wouldn't have found any a robust solution. Or dispiriting. <laughs> so so I, yeah. it, it's been very important to scale up the syntheses. It's been very important to get lots and lots of human beings, smart human beings coming in and engaging on Eterna. And I, I really do think it's going to help us create create molecules that will reach the clinic and have an impact on lots of people, in this yeah. case, potentially billions of people. I imagine. I, yeah. uh, I wonder, um, so, and even at that level with these very complex structures, did the feedback of getting that experimental uh, data, did did players, were they able to like take that feedback and take it on board? Do you have it's any It's been idea? absolutely critical. Yeah, it's been absolutely critical. And we can, it's, it, that, and I know this because for two, two reasons. Look, there's something I haven't told you yet about Eterna that is very, very special. I've told you about the community of folks um, who, who've, uh, who we've recruited. Um, but uh, starting around 2000, it was about five years ago, the original developers of Eterna, including people in my lab, people are collaborating with us on the web, website, we're all academics, and so students and postdocs finish up their time in our labs and cycle out. And we realized we don't have anyone to sustain the project. We had a real crisis. Oh. And But what happened is we put out job postings and ads, and Eterna players answered those postings. Wow. And so now the development team of Eterna is primarily players. <laughs> That's They're great. player developers. And That's so they great. have their pulse on... What the community, what this community is doing on the yeah. forum and chats, they have their own private slacks, uh, you know, to, to work. They have Google Docs where they're essentially writing their own scientific papers, and it's all based on it's ranking solutions based on our experimental feedback, and then finding features that exp- that hopefully explain the properties of those good solutions. So that feedback is still absolutely critical. Uh, yeah. And so the other thing I wanted to say is. Um, uh, Starting uh, three years ago, the players started to organize a conference. It's called EternaCon. And uh, so I'm uh, not directly involved. I I provide a room at an auditorium at Stanford to um, host um, Eterna players. Um, But it's organized by the players. Uh, Most of the talks are by the players. And it's this hybrid of a game convention and scientific conference. And it's really the best conference I go to every year. (laughs) Uh, because 
the players explain to us how they get solutions to this, like these tuberculosis diagnostic puzzles um, or to these CRISPR switches. That's, and it's like... That's yeah. so wonderfully inverted compared to most, <laughs> you know, academic <laughs> science. But yeah. there's a real point here. And I, I want to just highlight this because, I, I mean, from my perspective anyway, I think one of the things that you've done that is really extraordinary is, been, is be very, very open to the contributions of of whoever, whatever. It's a very open system. It's a very sort of a setup where you actually are just sort of saying, come and see what happens kind of thing. And in, in academic yeah. science, a lot of times we sort of think of these academic sciences directed by, you know, there's someone at the top who says, this is where the solution is and we're going to go there. And, you know, yeah. and that, that's sort of the model that we usually have set up for academic yeah. science. But this is really going a totally another way. So the question I want to ask you, though, is like, did, did that sort of come naturally to you? Did you wrestle with that? How, how did you navigate as a scientist who sort of has come through this educational system, which is somewhat hierarchical and, right, you yeah. know, directed by the great mind at the top? Did you struggle with it or was it just natural to you? How did you actually na navigate through that yourself as an academic scientist? And, and or did, was there a moment when you're like, you know what, I just need to let go? How did you find your, yourself in the place you are now? I, I – uh, my training um, – I think prepared me for a project like Eterna. Uh, I, because I came out of particle physics and cosmology, I was used to having collaborations that involved dozens or hundreds that's of people. A really so it wasn't point. a big stretch yeah. to maybe to expand it to 100,000 people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's that, one thing. That's a really interesting point. And it's not usually the kind of thing you learn about, yeah. you know, a physics training being useful. Usually yeah. it's like, oh, well, I know how to you know, <laughs> use an equation to model reality, yeah. you know, whatever. But it's it's a different kind of yeah, And I'd say particle thing. physics is actually not that hierarchical. There's uh -huh. a, there's a uh, kind of idealistic society feel to a lot of these collaborations, which I took away. That's great. Um and then my graduate work, although it was in the physics department at Stanford nominally, I got adopted by the biochemistry department at Stanford, which has long had a history of essentially it's run like a commune. I should say like a family. How about it's, it's like a family yeah. where all the labs there have typically less than 10 people. The professors have their offices inside the labs. Many of the great ideas of the biochemistry department, Nobel Prize winning ideas like recombinant DNA, mm -hmm. were uh, they were discovered or invented by graduate students who were just staying up late at night and um, just talking to each other across labs. Uh -huh. So there's a uh, open feeling to it. We all share. They all share equipment. Um, it just has that family feeling to it, and. Uh, after I finished my graduate work there, uh, did my postdoc, I actually came back to be faculty there because I I love that atmosphere, yeah. um, and I and I do think it lets us solve a class of hard problems that other, there's no other way to solve. So I really, for me, it was quite natural then to help lead and put together Eterna. And I gotta say, I mean, I it, it is also humbling because I, I'll tell you a recent story. Um, uh, there's a set of really complicated puzzles on Eterna that are even difficult to solve in a computer. And I just mentioned one, like this open TB diagnostic. But, and so uh, I said, well, look, most of my lab, uh, we're computational biologists. Maybe we can learn from the moves that Eterna players are using to solve these puzzles, you know? And we're going to apply deep learning methods on these massive move sets, and perhaps that'll let us to get to better algorithms. And indeed, we... Uh, Earlier this year, my lab, another lab, Vijay Pandey's lab in chemistry, um, and other folks have 
have been able to look at what eternal players are doing and get better algorithms for RNA design. So that's great. We have a benchmark that we all use. In fact, it came from the Eterna project. It's called the Eterna 100 Project. Players created a benchmark of challenges for each other that we now use in the <laughs> academic community. That's so cool. So anyway, but so we're we're pushing on these algorithms. Our, our first generation of algorithms could solve maybe 30 of 100 of these puzzles. Uh, our now deep learning informed algorithms uh, can solve 70 or 80 out of 100 of these puzzles. But the last 20 are just impossible, right? So I held a, a summit um, uh, earlier this year at Stanford. People came into my video to talk about their algorithms, mostly academic groups, right? Yeah. One player comes in. His name is, uh, goes by Nando. El, El Nando 8888 is his login. He's, I'm allowed to say this because uh, he, he came in and said, oh, I don't know all this deep learning, fancy machine learning, artificial intelligence stuff, but I just sat and thought about the problem for a bit and coded up an algorithm and it can solve 98 of 100 of this problem. Oh, my God. So, you know, so <laughs> there were 20 puzzles that I basically I considered impossible for a computer, and he just went and cleaned them out. So by dramatic wow. margin, um, Nando just destroyed us. And so that was, it's just very humbling. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> but the problem got solved. That's great. And, uh, I, and Nando has... This is a wonderful thing, but Nando has written a paper. He's a, he's a sole author on the paper on his algorithm. It's called Nemo. It's out in BioArchive now. You can go Great. find it. Um, and it's under peer review, and I think it'll be published soon. That will be, the I think, the first time that any the scientific paper has been written by a video game player uh-huh. um, <laughs> working alone. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> So that would never have worked if we had a hierarchical project where I was telling people to do stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, never. That's really, really yeah. extraordinary. Well, um, I want to turn to one last topic before we uh, finish up here on the podcast. And, and that is, um, you know, so we brought you here today to Yale, um, back to Yale, actually, in a way, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, since uh, since uh, some of the early RNA work was here at Yale. That's right. Um, to actually... Um, attend a, a meeting which, where we're talking about a lot of these um, progress we're making in CGEM toward genetically encoding new polymers. So what would be really, really interesting, and I, and I hope uh, as, we, as we continue this, uh, this research will happen, is, uh, is, f- is to be able to bring these two projects together to some degree. So, so I just wanted to ask you, since one of the goals of CGEM is to modify the structures of this translational apparatus that right. we started this podcast talking about, yeah. these ribosomal RNAs and, and the tRNAs, actually, that bring in the individual monomers that you then build yeah. the polymers with. Uh, you know, usually tRNAs bring in uh, amino acids that build a protein, but we want to bring in alkyls or other other chemical groups that yeah. we can like. You, you know, want to make Kevlar in. with ribosomes. Exactly. Or <laughs> you know, we want to make things we don't even know about yet. Yeah. You know, very much, uh, very exciting uh, prospect, but we're going to need some really strong power to yeah. figure out these new pieces that we need to put together to do this. Yeah. And I think that um, that we need to be appropriately humble <laughs> and uh-huh. realize that our ability to sort of, sort of figure this out yeah. may be limited, and something like uh, the tools that you're developing could be incredibly useful. Yeah. So I just wanted to invite you to to comment on how could, how might we create these new functions, and would there be a way to to use sort of this kind of massive open laboratory? to help in this process. Yeah, I think, I think that, okay, first of all, I want to say that uh, I think CGEM's goals are incredibly ambitious in the best possible way. And it's, it's like science fiction. Like if, you, <laughs> if, if CGEM succeeds, then we'll be able to evolve new kinds of clothes and new 
foods and new medicines. I mean, it's going to be. I I I I I'm floor I'm floored by the ambition. And uh, so ever since I heard about what uh, you all wanted to, wanted to do, I guess about two or three years ago, I I've been thinking about how uh, Eterna might be able to help. So. It's perfectly complementary to Eterna because in Eterna, it turns out to be kind of expensive to um, prototype and develop games and to prototype and develop also experimental methods to go and <laughs> make yeah. all these solutions. And so we really try to choose our problems carefully. We try to choose problems where it's very clear that no conventional approach will do it. Mm-hmm. And to me, redesigning ribosomes to make alternative polymers I think it's going to, like you said, <laughs> it's going to be hard. We should go in humble. Yeah. But that's perfect for Eterna. So to set the scale of the problem, let's suppose you want to make a ribosome that instead of making proteins makes, say, mirror image proteins or makes, I'll uh, say it makes Kevlar. You have to make a choice. The ribosome has 5,000 letters that you can change, right? You've got to find a new sequence of those letters that... Um, will have this alternative function. That's a that is a hard design problem. Yeah, what's the longest? There's no computer method that. What's can do the longest that. molecule you've designed using the Eterna framework? Like, is it? It's a few hundred. A few hundred base pairs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I so and and not right. So so that to me, there's an exciting prospect of taking Eterna and creating puzzles. We just in the last few months, uh, we and others in the RNA field have figured out how to fold uh, essentially in real time to simulate the folding in real time of RNA molecules that are 5,000 nucleotides long. It's not possible. It is. So uh, uh-huh. it's, easy, it's these classic algorithms that I told you about from the 70s. They're so-called secondary structure modeling algorithms. But there's a new method called linear fold out of Oregon State University that accelerates the folding dramatically. And then just two weeks ago, uh, Folks in the Eterna development team said, "Hey, can we can we install linear fold within Eterna?" And uh, there's a web technology called WebAssembly or WASM that has silently crept into all of our web browsers, and it allows um, something that never could be done before. You can take a piece of scientific code written in the language of C or C++, which is uh, this highly efficient language for scientific computing, but it's typically you can only run it if you're a uh, an expert. In, yeah. yeah. You probably know this. Um, but there is now a way to take essentially any C or C++ code base and compile it to run on any web browser or phone. Ah, that's great, too. Yeah. So we did it. So the person on my team, in he said in 20 minutes, he was able to get linear fold on Eterna. And we haven't deployed this uh, worldwide yet, mm-hmm. but I, c- I could show you now on your laptop. You can wow. uh, fold a ribosome scale RNA and interactively redesign it to form alternative shapes. Amazing. So I think, so that's incredible. The ribosome design problem, the ribosome, to under- to really redesign this function, you have to think about it in three dimensions. And uh, we have prototype 3D interfaces into Eterna. Right now, if you play it, it shows you kind of a cartoon schematic in two dimensions. But we have prototype 3D design algorithms and visualizers in Eterna. And so I'm, I'm really excited about the prospect of launching ribosome design problems on Eterna, helping CGEM come up with solutions. And I, I, and I think what would be even you – know, right now we're making 10,000 uh, uh, RNA molecules for each turnaround. But I think because of the power of what CGEM is doing, the experimental technologies you guys are developing – it should be possible for Eterna players to synthesize not just 10,000 designs, but 10,000 libraries. Wow. Yeah. Right? So each, each, each design that I, we would make would be 
have some nucleotides you randomize. And then if you could go and test them and see if they could make these alternative polymers then and tell us which ones worked and which ones didn't work, and maybe even solve the structures of some of these in three dimensions. That's now possible with the cryo-electron microscopy. This, this Outstanding. So so all you eternal players out there know yeah. there's some pretty complex problems coming your way. Oh, I th- Get I ready. Think it, yeah, <laughs> I think we're, you know, bring it on. We're <laughs> ready. So all right, I'm well, hoping that we can do that in the next few years. I think on that note, let's, uh, let's just finish up. Oh, there's one more thing I want to say before we end. Uh, Riju invites you to join Eterna, the super fun puzzle game that empowers you to invent medicines for tuberculosis, for genetic diseases and cancer, and maybe soon <laughs> design new ribosomes for the generation of new materials. Yeah. Uh, in order to get there, you go to eternagame.org. That's E-T-E-R-N-A-G-A-M-E dot O-R-G. Uh, I logged on recently and played myself. It was super fun. And so go ahead and do it. Have fun and do good. Come okay? join us. <laughs> All right. It was great to have you here, uh, Regine. Thanks, Jeff.